if you go that far into developing a trail system, literally everything else that you've done up to that point is going to be a win. So if I'm going to look for a trail system, I'm going to start looking for stuff like that. This is the difference between finding a great restaurant and going back to a great restaurant. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blom. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. For episode 153, we have Chris Skogan. I can introduce Chris in many different ways, from a gravel hall of fame inductee to simply a rad human being who's got a ton of life wisdom to share. The reality is that Chris provides an amazing perspective of how we react to life's opportunities. This conversation is a slight departure from our standard trail-specific conversations. I promise we go deep on trails at the end of this one. And everything Chris lays out prior to talking trails creates a foundation for trails. I've said it before and hopefully I'll say it again. This conversation with Chris is definitely one of my favorites to date. I can personally relate to what Chris is saying in here, and I'm fairly certain I'm not alone. Smith's Bike Shop. The owners at Smith's Bike Shop were gracious enough to open their shop on a Sunday night to Chris and I so we could record this conversation. Smith's is a local bike shop in the Lacrosse community, and Smith's provides a huge amount of support to trails in Lacrosse. But wait, there's more. Smith's is also a huge supporter of many great causes in this community, and Smith's has partnered with Strider Bikes through All Kids Bike to bring Strider Bikes to multiple elementary schools in the Lacrosse School District. When you are shopping in La Crosse, be sure to support Smith's Bike Shop, the shop that supports the community it's located in. Cooley Creative is the title sponsor for this episode. They design and build custom websites, as well as help companies with branding, photography, and e-commerce. Cooley Creative was started in Wisconsin, but is now based out of Bend, Oregon. Jared from Cooley Creative is a friend of mine. We've traveled together on multiple mountain bike trips, and sometimes he sends it. For more information about Cooley Creative, head on over to www.dojustsendit.com. Yes, that's right. it will get you to the Cooley Creative website, so check it out. Now on to the trail effect with Chris Skogan. This will be a nice distraction. Yeah, so like people reschedule, right? And then I saw Instagram this morning. We're live, by the way, or we're recording. Okay. And I, like, I got home really late last night, coming back from Bentonville for work, working there all week, and I saw, and like, I popped up Instagram because I was kind of groggy this morning, and the first thing I see is you. Yeah. In your vehicle. I was there. And it's got no wheels. Yeah. I saw that, too, um, in real time. And yet, we're still here now. And that was... That was in Minneapolis and you're in lacrosse now. So you still made it. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was looking forward to this. Um, and I think I was looking forward to it a little bit more like this morning. Like, you know, my, everybody, everybody just sort of, you know, goes after their day, right? Whatever that, whatever that's going to look like. I saw this thing not too long ago online and it was this guy and he was going around in in New York City and asking 
people who had clearly just come from a gym or like a yoga studio or something, but he would stop them and ask them if he could ask them a couple of questions about their fitness program. Anyway, this, this person stopped another person who was older, like, you know, I think they had said that they were 78 by the end of it. Anyway, he asked like, you know, what do you do for fitness? And the, the, the guy was like, I, you know, I, I ride a stationary bike six days a week and I go to yoga two days a week and I do this other thing. And so they kind of broke that down. And then at the end, the, the interviewing person was like, well, you know, what's your number one piece of advice? And the old guy like didn't miss a beat. He's like, get up when the bell goes off. And I was like, yeah, that's like, if you can just do that, everything that comes after that gets like easier, right? Just get up when you said you were going to get up because it's real easy to turn the bell off, right? Turn the alarm off. So this morning, like we had plans, we were going to go run. We had plans to do 13 miles on the, on a trail system in Northwest Minneapolis like in the Northwest Metro and the game was to leave the house by five 30. So alarm goes off at four 30 and like I hit it right. Bell goes off. I'm out of bed. I just see this old guy, like from the interview, like get up when the bell goes off, like get up. I eat some, a little bit of breakfast. We had the coffee maker prepped, like doing all the things, getting ready. We're going to, we have to pick up a friend of mine, on the way so that we can make it to the trailhead by 6.30. So the plan was to leave the house at 5.30, pick up the friend at 10 to 6, and then drive 40 minutes to get to the trailhead on time to do this 13-miler, right? Not a big deal. Get dressed, ready to run, actually feel pretty good, walk out the front door, it's still dark, and I, my where I park is right in front of the house on the street and it's down probably six steps. The house sits up a little bit. And I like, I looked out there and the, my truck was there, but the wheels that I had yesterday were gone. And I was like, that, that can't like, that can't be. So I probably took another step. I don't really remember what happened, but I saw that there were no wheels. And then it was like pretty clear to me what had happened and that someone or some ones like people, a group of people took my wheels overnight without asking. So then I was like, okay, the wheels are gone. I guess we're not running. So let's figure out plan B. Right. So we get up when the bell goes off, that makes everything easier. And in this case for me, like it, it kind of did, right? Because I just had to keep moving. And at 5.30 on a Sunday morning, if you don't have any wheels on your vehicle, there's nothing you can do except wait for something to open and hope that something opens. And for, you know, for me, fortunately, living in a metropolitan area like Minneapolis, there's options. So, you know, went back in, made a pot of coffee and decided that I would take some photographs and as long as I got to do this, I was, you know, maybe somebody else was curious. So I just put it up and then I ended up having a conversation with a bunch of people online about my wheels being gone. And the reactions were all over the place, but mostly like, you know, what the hell? And I was just like, well, you see, they came in the middle of the night and they took my wheels. That's what happened. 
And I kept going, like everyone was like, what, what, what? So I just kept answering. And then I, like, it was a little bit probably therapeutic for me because I just kept, I just kept it black and white. Like, this is what happened. And it's okay. Like, I'd really, I really, I think I, at one point I said I needed new tires anyway, which I did. And now I'm getting new tires and I'll, you know, I'll have new rims also. So they also needed to be rotated, which is a real thing. And there was overdue. So I'm not, I mean, I'm not mad. This is part of life, right? Yeah. Lemons to lemonade. Yeah. I mean, that's one option, right? We can, uh, that's the common answer is. What do you do when life hands you lemons, right? You make lemonade. I thought about, I was thinking about that subject exactly today. And I think the, for me, not for, I can't speak for anybody else, but if life hands me lemons like this again, or anything else really, I think I'm just going to just take a second and, and like just graciously accept the lemons first, right? Like. And then, then I can figure out what I'm going to do with them. Like, I don't know if lemonade is the right solution. It might be a pie or it might be cough drops, or maybe it's some kind of cocktail. Like a whole bunch of things can happen with lemons. And I think we, I think we short suit ourselves if we just jump straight to lemonade, right? Like, so my advice, not that anybody's asking, but if life hands you lemons, like just be grateful and accept them. And then you can figure out what to do with them later. Seems reasonable, right? Yeah. Well, it makes sense really. When you look at it from that perspective, cause you might not need the lemonade. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this really might not be the thing. Like if somebody takes your wheels in the middle of the night, like what do you, what are you going to do about it? Just, you just deal with it. Right. And start checking boxes. You can't call the tow company until you know where to tow them. So you got to call somebody else first and then you call the tow company and then you just start going through the boxes and checking them off. I can tell you if anybody's, if you have a forerunner, which I don't know if people that listen to this drive forerunners, but if you have a six bolt lug wheel, make sure the tow company you call has something, they call it a gunny wheel or a goonie wheel. And they make two varieties. The tow company that I called had one, but it was the incorrect one. So then a net, like the first technician came and then another technician came who seemed to be a little bit more experienced. And between the two of them, they were just sort of presenting a variety of options to me, which at this point, like I'm five hours in. I'm not really interested in like deliberation or, you know, any kind of like conceptual ideas about how to move my truck, right? Like I was really open to just hearing what the solution was and then seeing action. So as I roll it back and I explained this to the guy who showed up first when the other guy took off to get something else. If I don't know anything about towing, which I don't, I'm happy to admit that. Um, I know more than today, but anything like towing or going into a bike shop or any other variety of like 
things that maybe somebody's not too familiar with, right? Like you go to this professional service because they're the professional service. And in going there, I think we all sort of will acknowledge that we show up with a very short list of needs. And and I, as I explained it to the person that was trying to help me, like as the customer in this particular situation, I just want, I want to tell you my problem. That's number one. So I want you to hear that. Number two is I want you to offer me a solution. And then number three, I want you to explain the timeline and the, like what the expectations are to get to the solution. And then number four, I just want you to ask me if I'm okay with it. Like, that's it. I'll tell you the problem. You hear that. You offer the solution because you're the professional and you do this all the time. And then you communicate to me the expectation. And then you ask me if I'm okay with it, period. And I'll tell you, I'm either okay with it or I'm not okay with it. And then we can go. These guys, like the first person came, didn't really know what he was doing. The second person came and he was like, I think we could do any one of a number of different things. And I just kept saying like, I hear you and I appreciate that you're offering all of these wonderful ideas, but I really don't care if you blow a balloon up underneath it and float it to where it has to go. Or if you want to build a boat underneath it and then flood the city with water and we can push it over there while swimming, like it doesn't matter to me how it gets there. I'm paying you to move it. So you figure it out and you tell me, and then I'll let you know if I'm okay with it. Eventually it got moved. The truck is gone. I ended up borrowing a friend's car who is very gracious and, and I appreciate this person's friendship immensely. And then I drove down here to lacrosse and, and listened to, um, there's a new Cat Power album where, she, where they cover um, all these Bob Dylan songs. So it was just like in the car, doing a thing, driving kind of mindlessly. And now I'm here and I'm, I appreciate the opportunity to like vomit all over this microphone and yeah. get all of that out because I feel like I'll sleep better. Yeah. So... We have Chris Gogan here. Hi. <laughs> I could probably intro Chris in multiple different ways. Not late. I've, you can't identify me that way. He's not late, even without wheels. Yep. As we just, as we just learned. And I, I mean, that's pretty incredible in itself. He's in the, uh, I think the most notable thing that I know Chris for, and I'm not a gravel rider, is that he's in the Gravel Hall of Fame. That's a thing. It is a thing. It sure is. And he was one of the first, I think, one of the first people to actually put a gravel event together. Yeah, it's in the, I mean, I was definitely early. Yeah. There were some others there, but we were all about the same time, give or take. Yeah. Chris is also a territory manager for Trek. Yeah, I manage territories. Well, I manage a territory. You manage a territory. Yeah. And I've learned that Chris has probably got a lot of chapters to his book. Maybe. We'll see. Someday. It's like a mad magazine, probably. More than a book. Because in, in, the, in the brief amount of research I did for this, I was going to really want to wing this one, but I found out that Chris also, at one point, ran for mayor of Rochester, Minnesota. I did that. 
Yeah. There was a, that was a quite a period of my life. Which is interesting because I know another guy that used to be a, we're going to call him a sales rep. And he is a mayor in a city of Minnesota. Oh, I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, uh, it's a, you know, like if you're going to manage territories or be an outside sales, like being a mayor is the, either the thing you do before that happens or the thing you do after that happens. I think it's like a, just something we all sign up for. He was also a promoter for different cycling events. Yeah. It doesn't like these, it's one apple tree, right? And it's just, yeah, we're all falling out of it. Yes is the answer. What is the question? That's a good one. One of my favorites. What do you want to know about it? Where'd how, that come how, from? How that was presented to you and what that's meant to you and where it's led you. Sure. Um, let's see. I'm 45 now, going on 65. Uh, and when I was about, we'll call it 20, probably 24, I think, I was a bartender at a pretty nice place. Um, and this guy came in and it was, it was not uncommon to have people sit at the bar that were pretty successful in life. And sometimes I would know who they were. And other times like this person would like, they came in and sat down and they asked for a gray goose and something at the, and at the time, this was 21 years ago, gray goose really wasn't a real big thing, at least not in this bar or the, the community that I was in. So I didn't have any gray goose. And I said, I'm sorry, sir. I don't have gray goose. And he said, that's fine. And we had our, our wine glasses hung above the bar, like between where I stood and where the customer sat, like literally above the bar top, there was a rack, a wooden rack that had wine glasses in it. And he, so this guy points up at the glasses and says, do you have a a larger red wine glass? And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, sir, but I don't have that either. And then he just sort of stopped what he was doing and looked at me and, and said, you just told me no twice. Why don't you tell me why I should stay here? And I said, I was basically pushed back on my heels to the back bar. And I was like, I don't, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I'm, I'm 24 years old and I, this isn't my place. Like I just work here. I don't know what to tell you. And he said, well, how about this? What if instead of telling me no on the gray goose, you said, I'm sorry, sir. I don't have gray goose today, but if I had it here tomorrow at five o'clock, would you come back? And it blew my mind. Like I hadn't even considered that as an outcome. So he stays. And then, so then he says, okay, I tell you what, I'm going to stay here. Not because I want to, but because this is the nicest place in town and I'm already here. So he ends up staying. He, he gets, I don't know what he got, a glass of wine and then ate dinner and stayed at the bar the whole time. And it was pretty common for me at the time to like just have these conversations with people and sort of, you know, casually throughout their dinner or before or after, like have a conversation with them. And I was really in the habit of asking for advice. So I asked this guy eventually, um, for his, for his big piece of advice. And, and I'll, I'll back it up for a second because he had explained to me then 
throughout the course of the evening that he was this ice cream shop owner and that he owned 175 ice cream shops on the East Coast. I never figured out what place it was, but I'm sure it wouldn't be too difficult to find 175 ice cream shops on the East Coast around whatever that was, 1999. So anyway, um, he explains that he's got these ice cream shops and he says, and so then I asked him, I said, what's your number one piece of advice for me? I'm 24. I'm just starting out. And he said, yes is the answer. What's the question? He said, if you want to bring a $15 oil change coupon into my, into my ice cream shop and use that, like fine. If you're going to make a habit out of it, we'll talk about it. If you want to come to work in your pajamas one day or dress up like a, you know, whatever costume you want to be in and, and come to work that day, that's okay. If you make it a habit, we'll have a conversation about it. But that yes is the answer. What's the question really stuck with me because I was in, I was in hospitality then, and I've basically been in and around hospitality for the rest of my life so far. And it's like everything I'm doing and everything I've been doing, yes is typically the answer, right? Like, if I go back to this morning, right, and the people that are coming to tow my truck, like, I, I don't need three solutions. Just give me one. All I want to say is yes. Like, all I want you to say is yes. I've got a problem. Can you solve it? Yes or no? It's pretty, I feel like it's pretty simple, but I think we tend to complicate it. So that's where that came from. And it has been a guiding principle for me, probably to a fault to some degree. But I feel like we get a, you know, whatever path I'm on, I tend to get a lot of stuff done. And yes is usually the answer. So let's just cut the crap and get to it. Yes. The Almanzo started with 12 people. Yeah. That was wild too. 2007? 2007. And it grew to? A whole bunch, like more than 12 for sure. Um, I was just talking about this the other day. I'm a big fan of handwritten notes. Yeah, I was going to go there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So in 2007, there were 12. In 2008, there were 40-ish. In 2009, there was 90. And in 2010, there were 400. So it really sort of like boomed exponentially. I think the most we ever had was 1,500 or 1,200 or somewhere in the four digits. But in 2010, I, I was putting the race packets together so people could come and like check in day of. And part of that packet was this handwritten note that I, so I, what I was doing, this is 2010, like this is, bare bones, really early internet stuff. Twitter was probably two or three years old. Um, Blog spots were still a big deal. And people were a little more careless with how they like put their stuff out online. So I went and like, I had the roster. I knew who was coming. And what I wanted to do was like take the standard check-in and elevate it. So I went and Googled all these people by name. And a lot of them had race results that were recent. So I would just write these notes like, hey, Josh, uh, saw you did well at such and such event in April. Like, congrats. I'm glad you're here. 
have fun, see you at the finish line. So I did that 400 times and then presented people, like didn't tell anybody about it. They just showed up, picked up their packets and they're like, oh, a race number, okay. And then they opened this envelope and they were like, what? Like, what is this? Like, who does this? Nobody does this. And nobody did that. And I don't know if anybody does it now. I'm sure plenty of people do, but it's something that I've carried with me for a long time. And now in, in, my, in the work that I do, I tend to write handwritten notes, not super frequently, but once in a while. And I'll do them. I'll try to like get a bunch done at the same time. And my hand, like if I write anything more than seven times, like similar fashion in a similar size space, my hand cramps. And it's been that way since 2010. Like that, that exercise, I think permanently damaged my hand, which is fine. Like it, it's okay. It still works. I can still ride a bike. What led you to starting that? Omanzo? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I read about it today. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, cause you're into cyclocross, right? Yeah. A little bit. Like I hadn't really ever done anything prior to that. I had put a couple of small events together in Rochester. The truth is like a friend of mine that I rode with pretty regularly was moving to Mankato to go to school. And I just had, I had this idea that we should, you know, we should ride to Mankato sometime just like hang out. And then I thought if we're all going to ride, like if there's a group of us that's going to ride, like we might as well race the cannonball style. Right. Like I'm just imagining, like, I can't remember that guy's name. Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm getting old and I think I'm losing my memory, but Burt Reynolds and then the other dude, Dom DeLuise, like he was in Cannonball, I think, right? I don't remember Dom Del. I don't, I only know Burt Reynolds because yeah, I remember, because yeah. it, it doesn't matter. That's Smoking the Bandit. Yeah. So anyway, I had like this Cannonball vision for this like Rochester to Mankato point to point thing. So I just, and then I was like, well, if we're going to go, we can't go like in a straight line because that's Highway 14 and that's completely ludicrous. So I'll just pick some back roads and all the back roads were made out of gravel. And then, so it happened, right? I put it out on the internet and 12 people showed up and then it started to spread a little bit like word spread, but I'm, I'm in there with this. Yes. Is the answer. What's the question philosophy, right? And I don't really know bike racing because I wasn't a, I wasn't a bike racer. I was a bartender going to art school. So after that, like my next move was, okay, it went well. How can it go better? And how can we improve on this? And then every year after was an extension of that. How can I do this better? And it really like, I don't want to ruin this for anybody. And if I do, that's on you. It's not on me anyway. So it doesn't matter. But it really wasn't ever about bikes. And it was really about, especially as it evolved, it was about creating space for human beings to look in a mirror and see themselves as someone who could accomplish something. And in taking that approach, like it didn't matter where you were on the start line, right? If you were super fast, you were up front, obviously. Like, why wouldn't you be? And if you were super slow and, and not going to win, you were probably in the back 
right? Because why wouldn't you be? And then everyone else in between in terms of speed or ability, like just filled in the gaps. But what I identified as it, as it grew from 12 to whatever it did was that no matter where you were on the start line, you had, and probably still have, insecurities. And the insecurities were the things that connected the people. And nobody really wants to talk about that because the insecurities that we live with were sort of culturally inclined to like just sweep them under the rug and pretend that it's not real. But when, when, when we have these events like this and we can create space for people, if we can create that space in a way that allows people to really just hold the mirror up. And in some cases, I think we have to hold it up for each other. But when you go take the start line on a hundred mile event, no matter where you are, fast or slow, like old hand or old hat or however that expression goes, or brand new, if you finish, you, you're doing a hard thing. And it's the same for everybody, right? Because the mileage is the same. The elevation is the same. How you navigate that space is different, but the fact that you navigate it is identical. So I, for years, would have people come up to me afterwards and say, you changed my life. Like the course of my life is different because I did this thing. So when I would get that feedback, I knew that it was valuable. Not in terms of like finance, right? Or economic wealth, but in terms of like, really moving the needle socially. It really had a profound impact. So it was a really, it was pretty neat. In 2012, I think it was as big as it ever got. And I, I had been surrounded by people that effectively told me that I was, you know, like shitting out gold bricks, right? Like I could do no wrong. And it felt really good to me. And I stood at the start line and I cried that morning when I was in the back of the truck. My dad took over actually um, and like stood in for me for a minute while I got my business together. But I looked out over the starting field and it was what I had envisioned, right? Like it had finally come true. All these people had showed up to do this really hard thing and it was this movement that was happening. And then after that, like because all these people were telling me that it was everything was so great and you know people were throwing stuff at me and there was a group that had worked to collect money to offset the costs of the th- of of putting it on and the Almanzo tire was out and it all felt really good to me but after that experience of standing in the truck and looking out and seeing it all as coming to fruition like I went home from that And took a look in my own mirror and was like, you did this. And then I had this moment of where, of like disgust with myself. Cause I took the tires, I'd taken the money, I took some of the stuff and I felt like I was doing it all on the backs of the people that were coming. Like I was selling them out to take this stuff. So it felt really dirty to me. And then I was really making it about bikes at that point. 
right? Because I just sort of succumbed to what was happening. Like I got pulled into the, into the wake of where the vendor side of things and manufacturing side and marketing side and retail side of things was moving gravel. Cause it really had become about bikes by then. There were tires with my name on it. There were bikes that were supposed to be named after me. And like, it became about bikes. And for, so for me at that point, like the whole thing was lost. Even though I had seen it come to fruition and it was what I had wanted, it wasn't what I wanted because people, I felt like people didn't understand what the point was. And then it just went crazy. If you think about the path for gravel between 2012 and 2023, like it, it ain't the same space. So it took, I, I, 2012 happened, 2013, we took a step back, 2014, I took a further step back. And then after 2014, I stepped away because I, I couldn't do what I wanted to do because it had shifted. There's a video and this will like, I'm clearly a dad, right? Like I have kids. I wore Brooks walking around New York city. Like I'm definitely somebody's dad at this point in my life, but there's a, a Jeff Tweedy from Wilco did a, there's like a solo, a solo project film about him touring the Pacific Northwest. And in that video, he talks about, I think he talks about, it's talking, he's talking about if, when you make something, you make it for you right? Like in the privacy of my own home, if I'm going to paint something, like as long as it's in my house, it's for me. But as soon as I paint that thing and I introduce it to somebody that doesn't live in my house, it's no longer mine, right? So it becomes sort of public property at a certain point because it's open to interpretation and opinion that's not mine. So anything that I make is subject to that. And so I spent from 2014 to 2022 really kind of pouring over this concept of making things and giving them away and then sort of letting go, right? It's like sending your kids off to school, which I'm not super familiar with, but I get it. And that's what Almanzo had become for me. And I have really had to work through that letting go part. So when the Hall of Fame thing came up, I really hemmed and hawed about whether or not I should even be a part of that because I don't know if I, I don't know if I align necessarily with what their perspective is today. When I thought about it and ended up making the decision to go down to Emporia and be a part of it, my side of that participation was, I just want to make sure you guys tell the story right. Because I feel like if I don't show up for that, you're going to miss some pieces. And I don't know if going there did that, but I can tell you from this seat today, I got what I needed to get out. If, if people want to see me as being a part of the hall of fame, that's great. But as of today, I'm, a guy that owns a Toyota that doesn't have any wheels on it. Like that's as far as it goes for me. We got to point out, cause there's one piece of the story that we didn't throw in there. Sure. 
the Almanzos or Almanzos always been free. It was always free. Yeah. And that was a big piece of the puzzle, right? So going into 2007, my, what I had seen, right. From, from my seat on the bus in terms of events were pay to play. You paid for everything, right? If it was a local, like tiny little homemade cross race, you put three bucks in a hat. If it was a, you know, a 5k run walk for, you know, people with five legs, like you, you paid some amount of money and then you got a shirt with a bunch of logos on it. And all events in my, from my vantage point felt the same, right? Like you pay some money, it goes somewhere to do something, whether it's make the event better or yeah, solve, you know, whatever human crisis seems to be, you know, the one that can drive the most traffic to a 1k walk, like whatever it is, you're going to pay the money and then go to the thing, get some sort of apparel or a poster or whatever it might be that has all the vendors. And then the whole thing's going to be staffed by volunteers and the money just goes someplace. And that all felt really gross to me. So I was committed to the idea of it being free. And in doing that, afforded myself this amazing luxury of lowering everyone's expectations to zero. Because if it's free, what am I supposed to do? Like, I don't know what to expect. You could have missed that course marking. Yeah. Like, and there was some feedback like that along the way, but most people in most of the time, other people would step in and shut it down. It was pretty impressive. So I think having it be free was a really critical component. I will say that the free part of it wasn't helpful. Like I ended up going, I filed bankruptcy not necessarily directly because of that, but I don't think dumping a bunch of money into an event that nobody ever paid for was a good idea, but I would probably do it again the same way. If what you want to get out of life is moving people forward in whatever way is possible, like if that's really what you want to do, I don't think you can attach a dollar value to that. And it doesn't, and I'm not trying to sit here and like paint myself as this holy human being, right? I have made a ton of bad decisions in my life and I am not, you know, I'm not unaware of that, but I can say that by and large, I have a, a reasonable, like human guiding light, right? And that tends to revolve around the concept of yes is the answer, what's the question. But it also has to do with the idea that like we are just people. And in so many ways, we're identical. And it's the ways that we're different that are really the minority, but it's so much of our attention. And that's the part to me that's like, man, this is, it's a bummer that we all got to do this this way. Because if we could just focus on the ways that we're alike, we probably all get along a little bit better. Oh, yeah. One of the biggest reasons why I wanted to have you on this show is you want to interchange a word 
with another word and it keeps grabbing my attention. And every, and I think about this cause I catch myself and we're going to throw those two words out here, but we're going to leave it in the listeners in suspense for just a second. Cause I catch myself using the word that you want gone or maybe not used quite so frequently. And I have to think about like how to dissect that because one of it is business and one of it is just togetherness in my, the way I look at it. And those two words are industry versus community. Right. And so I, and I keep every time I use the word, cause I, I'm going to, I'm going to throw the word industry out in the way that it would be traditionally used. I work in the trail industry. And every time I catch myself saying that, even if I say it just to myself, the word trail industry, not my, you know, and I put those two words together, I keep thinking to myself, I got to correct that to community. And the reason why I keep saying that to myself is one, because of you, but two, like this podcast was built on trails helping communities. Yeah. That's the whole point of it. Yeah. It wasn't, it's not the trail effect because it affects the trail industry. It's trail communities. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, the two words are interesting. It's, a. Uh, have been around bikes for a while now. Um, and I've been around bike people for a while and it's this thing that I keep hearing and have heard for a long time. Like, oh, I work in the industry. And I, frankly, at this point, like the restaurant world is full of it also, right? Oh, I work in the restaurant industry. Oh, what do you do? I work, I work in this industry. I work in this other industry or I'm part of the industry or are you in the industry? Like all the industries, right? It's a real thing. If you're, careful and you're listening well, I bet you heard it today. And if you didn't hear it over the weekend, you'll probably hear it in your workday. So I keep hearing that. And what I'm seeing in spaces like retail is that it's, it's getting really hard, right? Like the, the brick and mortar spaces of retail, it's difficult right? It's, there's a lot of competition and some, and a lot of that competition is online. So we're trying to compete with this digital landscape and we're going back to this like learned vocabulary, which is industry. And I would ask you, and I'd ask anybody the same thing. You can ask, I'll ask anybody listening to this right now. Like, here's an exercise. Think about a bike shop right? Think about your favorite bike shop ever, right? Probably a cool place. Yeah. So think about that space, visualize it, right? So you've got a vision of your bike shop and then think about the word industry with your eyes closed and tell me what industry, just the word alone, right? We're not attaching it to the bike shop. We're just looking at the word industry. What does that look like? Because in my mind, there's a Pink Floyd album cover, right? And it's bricks and it's smokestacks and it's smog and it's really pretty gross. So that's what I think of when I see, when I hear the word industry, that's what I see. So we're using this word and just throwing it around, right? Like it's not a big deal. But we're doing it in spaces that will only thrive if people come in and it has to be inclusive. 
So it's my position on this particular subject, right? This word industry, it's my position that the word itself is extremely exclusive. And when we throw it around between ourselves, like, oh, I work in the industry. Oh, yeah, you work in the industry too? Sick. Like, we're not doing anybody any favors because we're putting ourselves inside of a circle, which is, you know, the polar opposite of everyone else at that point who's outside of the circle. So if the goal is to eliminate the circle, right, take down the barriers, get rid of the fence, continuing to use language like industry to describe what we do and where we do it and how we do it is counterintuitive. That doesn't make any sense. So I would challenge everybody to, to replace the word industry with community or world. Like if you end up in a conversation with me anywhere ever, like I've been practicing this for a couple of years, I don't use the word ever. And that's not to say that industry doesn't have a place, right? Because industry is a real thing. But when you think about it in terms of like usability or I don't know if is usership a word? I don't what's the, I don't know what the word for I, that I is. I just say like if we're talking about people, users. Users. So if you think about users in terms of population numbers, right? And if you go through the list, like let's take a bike, right? So the bike gets manufactured. First it gets designed. And then it gets manufactured. And once it leaves manufacturing, it enters this like shipping path. And the shipping path then leads it to its next destination, which is probably a retail sales floor. At that point, the bike then like goes through this journey where it ends up with its end user. And if you think about the populations that handle that bike, just in terms of like spaces, right? You've got, if we take the, the manufacturer, let's call that 10 people touch the bike. And then you go to shipping, it's probably 11 people. It's not much more than manufacturing. But once the bike moves to the retail space, how many bike shops are there in North America? A whole bunch. And they're filled with employees. So that's the next largest population. And then you get to the end consumer, which is the largest population, like four bikes at large. Like, so you have this growing population, right? But if industry really is only happening at manufacturing, there are, in my version of this explanation, 10 people with a right to use the word industry when they're talking about bikes. Everyone that comes after manufacturing, shipping, retail, and consumer, they're existing within the, the confines and boundaries of community. So if we're out here in the bike shop world and we're hanging out with our sick dude bros talking about industry, like we're not even in the right space for that. Like we're not even using the right words, but somebody taught us that. That's learned. So we need to unlearn it or at least commit to not saying it. And I think if we can do that, we can make the space for bicycles way more inclusive. Just the space for people. Same with the restaurant industry. industry all of it. Yeah. yeah. It's all the spaces get better when we stop using things like smokestacks and bricks and in these conveyor belts. Yeah. Cause that, I mean, I've thought of it as like, we can use it 
in the context of where we are today, which is in Smith's Bike Shop. So I would say in the old way of using the word industry, the way you explained it, I would say Eric, the owner of the bike shop, is in the industry as a bike shop owner. But when Eric walks out the door and we go on a ride together, now we're just part of the community. Right. But the reality is, was it really any different before he walked out the door? No, he's a part of the community the whole time. Correct. And that's where, like, when I think about bike retail especially, like, everybody would love to throw whatever is happening currently in this, like, post-pandemic space where, and it's, frankly, it's not just bikes. It's retail at large, right? Retail's hard. Brick-and-mortar retail is a difficult enterprise. And you really have to be constantly working to improve to make it work. So I think a lot of times as humans, we can go all the way back to the beginning of this conversation and go to my front yard this morning, right? Like I can walk out my front door and I can get upset and I can blame my problem on somebody else. I can do that. Most of us would probably choose that path given the circumstances. And that happens a lot at retail too, right? Like I'm going to blame somebody else because inflation's up or traffic's down or e-bike regulations are weird or there's a tax credit coming and nobody understands it or there's this problem or that problem or, you know, it rained today or there's snow in the forecast or you know, the sun never came up for a whole week and we lived in the dark, like all kinds of things can happen. And I'm not suggesting that those things aren't bad. Of course they are. So is waking up and finding your truck in the street without any wheels. Like that's a problem immediately. But I'm not going to blame the people that took them. Clearly they needed them more than I did, or I would have been out there to prevent that from happening. So what I do with that is what defines the next part of my day. And if I blame you, the wheel thief, for taking my wheels, it's going to prevent me from getting to solutions. And really, at the end of the day, all I want is solutions. I said that earlier. Like, just give me the solution and we'll go from there. And if I have to make the solution, then I'll do that. I'm pretty good at it. So, When it comes to retail and it comes to industry and it comes to all these things that we're doing to ourselves and we don't even know that it's happening, like we also can just stop that. We can just say, I'm not going to say the word anymore. I'm going to stop blaming other people for my problems. I'm going to start focusing on solutions. Heck, I'm going to get up when the bell goes off. Like all that's an option. Or conversely, we can keep doing what we've been doing for decades. And we can keep getting the same results, which I can tell you from where I sit, if we keep being the same people we've always been in retail or in any space where we're closed off and and choosing to focus on problems, that book has been written already by millions of people across dozens, if not hundreds of cultures across the planet, historically, it has an end date. It is not a sustainable, successful path. Like You can't stay closed off from people. That was wild. I'm sorry. That was like a bunch of diarrhea mouth. No, this is good because it kind of 
it goes back to almost insecurities, I think. 100%. And ego. 100%. And like wanting to like, dif- like differentiate, differentiate you because of what you do from this other person over here that doesn't do what you do. Yeah, it's comparison. It's, it's, it's fear. It's in, fear and insecurity live under the umbrella of ego, in my experience, right? So I can take a path. I can take two paths forward at any given moment. I can take the path of fear or I can take a path of faith, right? And it's not faith in a sense that like there's a Bible involved or some sort of like Christianity or, you know, some sanctimonious religion. Like that's not the faith I'm talking about. I'm talking about, I have faith that the sun will come up tomorrow. Like that's more where I'm at. But what I've learned over time is that I only get to pick one and I can pick fear or I can pick faith, but I can't do them both at the same time. And it will always be easier to pick fear because we've taught ourselves that it's okay to be afraid and it's comfortable to be afraid. And I can project my fear onto you so that you have to deal with it and I don't have to, which is a re like, that's, that's a little lofty maybe, but it's real. This concept of fear and faith and, and the ego is a real human thing that doesn't go away ever. Like we will always and forever, as long as we're taking in air, have to deal with our ego in some form or another. But underneath that, we can deal with our insecurities, right? We can identify them and name them and like talk about them and deal with it. And we can talk about our fears and we can name those two and identify them and like deal with it. And then we can talk about faith and what that looks like. And we can practice these things like we practice anything else, football, riding, like running, writing anything. And the more you practice, the better you get. Right. But it's a, nobody wants to talk about insecurities. Nobody wants to talk about fear. And nobody really wants to talk about faith because that makes the hair on the back of people's neck stand up, which is super weird because if like we have faith, right? Almost all of us. And we probably don't even acknowledge it. Yeah, even if it's something as simple as trying to complete a task, like you have faith that you can do it. For sure. And if that, like, so before we got on here, we were talking about this 50-mile walk that that Jared here from the shop did recently. And that's something that I have done in my life at one point too. Like I went for a really long walk, which I would encourage anybody to do the same. Like at some point in your life, go for a long walk. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I think it's called the something to do with the Kennedys and 50 miles and a March. I don't remember it exactly. I think it was an article in time magazine from several decades ago, but it's, I think it's called the Kennedy March. doesn't matter really, I guess, but I went for a really long walk, 56 miles of just walking, not running, just walking. It took 17 hours, 16 of it was moving and it was pretty monotonous. First, like half, 27 miles was pretty cool. I went with three other people. And then the back end, like none of us walked together. None of us were talking to each other. And everybody was like in their own space, like just existing with their own brain. 
which is a really uncomfortable place to be for a lot of people. So we did that and then it was over. We all went back to our lives, had a hard time getting up the stairs the next day, like all of those typical problems. But long game, you know, years removed from it, I can sit here today and recall almost every step because it was, I was extremely present in that moment. But I can also tell you that since then, and this has been a few years, I will get up and walk around regularly, almost probably every day, if I'm honest. And I don't think about a single step that I take. It just happens. Right. So I have this like, I have an un, like, I, I'm not even aware of the faith that I have in my own body because I'm not paying attention to what's happening. Right. I take in air all day long, 24 hours a day when I'm sleeping. And I don't do that mindfully very often. That's faith. Like, that's very clearly unquestionable faith. Fear is the opposite of that. And like, we deal with that all the time, but we mask it up as insecurities or we end up in this comparing space and like, it, I'm getting off track, but. I don't know if we ever had a track. We beyond. might probably didn't have a track and that's okay too. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to pivot. One of the things, so you recently did an event here in lacrosse at the Rivoli Theater. And that was like, to me, the light bulb moment is like, cause I've been thinking about the community versus industry thing and wanting to like really do a deep dive with you on that. Mm-hmm. And then when the, when the Trek, when the season 365 thing came to be, it was kind of a light bulb moment for me because it's like, wow, like how many, and I don't, and maybe everybody did this. I don't know, but how many other shops across the country or how many other territory managers across the country did what you did and brought a bunch of shops together into a movie theater and a community to have people together. I don't think any is the That's kind of what I assumed. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think any, and it's, uh, I don't know that at the risk of sounding extremely confident, I'm not entirely sure that I will say that I have the right skill set for it. Right. Because this is not my first event. I've done a bunch of them and I've done them on very large scales. So for me to produce an event like this, it was really sort of second nature. And most people don't have that. Right. So I think it's something people can learn if they don't already have those skills. Um, I think it's something that I hope continues to, to expand and, and evolve. The company that I work for manufactures bikes. It's, that's the primary function, right? That's what we do. One of the lesser known functions of what we do is that we work with our partners at retail, independent owned bike shops. We work with those folks to help them run a better bike shop. And we do that so that the bike shop can be healthy because if the bike shop is healthy, the bike community is healthy, right? And if the bike community is healthy, then the people that are in the bike community are healthy. 
And if there are more healthy people active and out in the world, there will probably be a sustainable path forward for the bicycle. And if, if you haven't ridden a bike and you're listening to this, there is a kind of an unparalleled freedom that exists with riding a bike. It's something that I've felt every time I throw my leg over a bike since the first time I did it. As soon as I push down on the pedal, I honestly get the same feeling I got as I did when I was eight and I was rolling down the driveway for the first time. It has never gone away and it is incredibly unique and I, I love it because it's freedom. For me, it's freedom. Right, and I understand that that word can t- carry a lot of like weight and and have some luggage attached to it. But for me, riding that bike is freedom. If you think about a intersection, like a like an automobile roadway intersection that has a maybe it has a bike lane. If you're in your car, your windows in 2023 are probably up, right? Climate controlled. You got both hands on the wheel, maybe one doesn't matter, but you're looking forward almost the whole time. And if you pull up to a red light in a car and you pull up next to someone else who's in their car, windows up, climate controlled, hands on the wheel, looking forward, you're probably 12 feet apart. The human portions of these two things are are about 12 feet apart. You don't know each other. You're not going to talk to each other. You're not even going to look at each other. It's awkward to look at each other. It's uncomfortable. Now, if you have the same intersection with the same two cars parked at the red light and there's a bike lane and one person pulls up to the bike lane and then a second person on a bike pulls up, you're inches from each other. Your exposed skin is like inches apart, maybe a foot, maybe two. You probably look at each other. You identify a similarity, right? You both chose to do the same thing. You're both incredibly vulnerable in this space because you're exposed as a human in a, in a world filled with thousand plus pound vehicles, right? So your safety is at risk and you connect there for a moment as human beings. And it's different than if you go three or four more feet to the right and you get to the sidewalk and the curb, right? Because on the curb, everybody's safe. The curb tells us that. So on the curb, when we're humans, we don't talk to each other. It's not a thing that happens. So there's something happening between the people standing on the curb and the people in the cars. And that middle space that's occupied by the people on the bikes, there's a shared sense of vulnerability. And when we can share our vulnerabilities as humans, we grow. Because we name them like we talked about, right? We name our fears, we name our insecurities. And when we do that, we can practice working through them. We do that on bikes, whether we want to acknowledge it or we don't. So the company that I work for, and this is probably, I'm going out on a limb to say this, right? Because I don't want to speak for the company. But I can tell you that everyone I've come in contact with so far being employed here seems to share some sense of this empathy and understanding of humankind and an understanding that if we get more people on bikes, the world is going to be a better place. So we really put an emphasis on helping bike shops do better. 
because it makes the community better, which makes the people better, which makes the bike world longer. So when the season 365 to go backwards is an event that we produce to help bike shops. My people, the people that I work with told me they wanted to be in person. And I'm, there's a movie called Bottle Rocket. It's Owen Wilson and Luke Wilson, like one of their first ones, super old. I love it. Um, anyway, they're interviewing this guy to do this bank heist. And he doesn't really have any skills. He's sitting in the back seat. And uh, so he's kind of, ex- he's applying for the job. And he's failing. It's miserable. At the end of the day, he just sort of acknowledges that um, he really just wants to be a part of the team. And that's his only endearing quality. And I think that's really where I'm at. Like, I just want to be a part of the team that's doing the most good work. So here I am. Let me at it. And like, let's bring the people together and do the good work. And I'll take the risk, right? Like, just let me be a part of the team because I'm a risk taker. And I'll do that and I can, I can get us down the field. So the, what happened here was bringing people together. So how many people did you bring together? Because I, I saw a post from like the shop in Red Wing, Minnesota. It was also here. Yeah. Um, we had 44 people from 15 shops come down and take the day in and we watched the videos and like it's all digital content that otherwise would have been consumed or not consumed individually by the shops. And I think the, I mean, I had some, a bunch of folks that showed up that said that they wouldn't have taken it in otherwise. So that piece, the win the season 365 exists within a, a, a catalog of other stuff that is, the other stuff is really focused and driven and like specific to shops. This one is the one that you can kind of consume collectively without too much damage. So what kind of, so who was there for the digital creators or digital content as far as like what kind of stuff was presented um, to help the shops? Yeah. So there was an interview with a guy named Will Guadera, um, who, who ran a restaurant called, um, 11 Madison park in New York city. It's the best restaurant on the planet. Um, wrote a book called unreasonable hospitality. That was probably the, if we could call it a headliner, that would be the headliner. Another another author, um, Liz Wiseman, wrote a book called Multipliers, um, which is very good. And then just, you know, it's basically thought leaders and, and people that are working in or around the hospitality business. And the questions are driven to to try to help, you know, just sort of focus it on retail. And, and helping people become better leaders or versions of themselves to yeah i mean that's more i think that's more of the abstract i think the application that we design it with is let's help people be better at retail because retail is hard right you've got the the back end the front end and then all the stuff in between and a lot of people get into the bike business because they love bikes and just because you love bikes doesn't mean you're good at hospitality or business and i think a lot of people could use some practice like and i'm not saying that specifically like i could use practice at being better at everything and i that's one of the things we try to do we we try to work with folks and and help them get to be whatever better version of themselves they want to be which is exactly what i was doing with almanzo the whole time it's what i've been doing for all my adult life 
It's just trying to help people be better versions of themselves or at least hold the mirror up and see something that they appreciate. Because if we can't do that, man, things are pretty ugly. I think I read today when I was reading about the Almanzo and and you going into the Hall of Fame, it was the Betsy Walsh interview with Outsider Bicycling, or I think it's all the same now. It was Velo News. It's all Velo News. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you stepped away from the Almanzo, you just you were you just you stepped away from gravel and you just went to your mountain bike. Yeah, and that's where I live today. On your mountain bike, mostly. While you're sleeping. Yeah. I can't drive my car, so I might as well ride my mountain bike. Your mountain bike still has wheels. It still has all the wheels. Yep. Extras even. Yeah. <laughs> what, uh, in that, in that space of like stepping away from gravel and, and the mountain bike, like what, what took you to the mountain bike specifically for that period of time or up till today, I guess you could say really. Um, as I've looked at it for the last couple of years, and I'm, I'll sound like a jerk for saying this, but. It used to be that I could go to anything bike related and somebody would recognize me. And for a long time, that felt really good. But as I came out of Almanzo and into the next six years before I really made peace with it, which was, I can tell you that the peace that I made happened at that induction ceremony or just leading up to it. And then sort of culminated in that interview that I did with Betsy. And when I left Almanzo, I felt I didn't like who I was. I didn't like who I had become or what I thought I had let Almanzo become. So I really needed to step away from that. And I felt like I was so ashamed of what I had done in letting it become about bikes that I I didn't want to be... I didn't want to have to acknowledge that that was me, that I was the one who did it. So when I left riding gravel roads and went to mountain bikes, anybody who's ridden a mountain bike probably knows it's just you and the woods. And I've yet to have an interaction with the woods where they're like, hey, aren't you so-and-so? It just doesn't happen. So for a lot of, for me, it was a lot of, it was an opportunity to escape. Uh, and I've been back at some gravel events since then. And it it still comes up and I'm much more comfortable with it today. But I mostly just want to mind my own business and be the guy who finds his truck in the street every day. With wheels? Yeah, with or without. It doesn't matter. Like, I mean, I'd prefer to not have the difficulty of having to find replacements but i picked up running not that long ago um about a year and a half ago and i've been i go for like i've I've improved i've practiced and gotten better at running um which does help with the bike but it's also super efficient i travel a lot and uh i can go run anywhere in the country and nobody knows me And that's not to say that I had like some, you know, gross life of fame, but the bike world is pretty small. And when you do something like I did, people tend to take notice. It's getting to be less and less as time goes on because it's changed so much. And I really did a good job of disappearing. Like I was, that was intentional. 
And then I hemmed and hawed and struggled with that. Like, you want to talk about ego, geez. Like, be told you're really great at something and then walk away from it. We can have a really good conversation about letting go after that. And that's something that people don't get to practice too often either. So, yeah, mountain bikes are cool. Gravel bikes are, I mean, all the bikes are cool. I own a checkpoint. Um, It's beautiful. But I kind of want to own a Madone because I just like riding on the pavement. Yeah, that's something I was, you know, I was just talking to, we're going to go into onto this, onto gravel versus road here for a second. I was just talking to Eric about that before you walked in because I don't have a gravel bike. And I think some people are surprised when they ask me about that because I know a mountain bike, but the, but I tell them like, it's hard for me to own a gravel bike where I live because gravel isn't convenient specifically to the core of where I live in Wisconsin. Now, if I go across the river to Minnesota, plenty. that's a different story. Yeah. But when we're talking about efficiencies, as you were just with running, because of the dairy industry in Wisconsin, every gravel road that you would find in other states is most likely at least chip sealed. And so it rides like pavement here in Wisconsin. Right. Which is a pretty incredible thing. Yeah, it's great. And if I, I mean, if I'm being honest and I lived in Wisconsin in 2006 and 2007, maybe we'd see a surge in road cycling. Like, because the approach would have been the same for me. And like I said, it wasn't about bikes. And frankly, it was never about gravel. It was just about people and affording them the space to see themselves. And that's where I think if we go, you can go 100% full circle and just sort of swirl this thing around. Like if we get back to the word industry, like if we're going to talk about creating spaces where people can hold a mirror up for themselves and see what they're capable of, that doesn't have a brand attached to it, right? So someone's affinity for American-made bicycle parts really doesn't matter to anybody but them because American-made bicycle parts or foreign-made bicycle parts to the person who just needs to believe in themselves doesn't matter which one they have, right? So when I'm operating from a place where I'm trying to push my opinion onto you, we'll take American-made versus foreign-made. If I'm going to push that onto you, I'm making that your thing, right? So if we go back to the painting, right, where I'm going to make the painting, if I keep that in my house, it's mine. But as soon as I let it go, it's public property. And the other person gets to make the decision. I don't get to decide for you how you feel when you look at my painting. I don't get to decide for you what you need when it comes to your bike. My job is to present you with the problem that you told me so that I'm confirming that I heard it. And then I'm going to present to you a solution. And I'm going to communicate the expectations of that solution. And then I'm going to ask you. And you're going to tell me. That's it. Nowhere in there is I'm going to deliver to you my opinion about what it is that you need. That's not a piece of that four-part puzzle. But it's part of what we do when we try to impose our idea of a good trail system 
or our idea of the right bike or our idea of what tastes good. Like that doesn't, I don't need a waiter to tell me what tastes good because he's never been in my mouth. They've never been in my mouth. Like I shouldn't attach gender either, but like nobody knows what I like. And I'm 45. You can't tell me at this point. And you can't tell me what I need because I'm the only one who gets to make that decision. And that's where we like continue to shoot ourselves in the feet. And then we blame it on margin or weather or wrong location. I just don't, like I'm not firmly a believer in the idea that outside forces control inside actions. Yeah. Well, (laughs) one thing that I always ask everybody with these podcasts, and this is an opinion thing. Sure. And I do it more or less to kind of get an aggregate of like, well, one, diversity matters in communities. Mm-hmm. And you can, and I say, and when I say diversity, I truly mean like diversity of anything. Sure. Like anything. And so I always ask people what they look for in a trail community in hopes that other people who may be putting together a trail community can take little pieces of answers from different people in different places to make a diverse trail community. Sure. So what do you look for? in a trail community. And I'll preface, I'll give you a little bit more specifics on this. I usually ask this in a way that in your case, say you had to move away from Minneapolis for whatever reason you had to, you had to go away from there. You couldn't come back there. Yep. You could go anywhere else though. And I don't mean a specific location. What are the things that would be in that place you could go to? Sure. I think I would look at it the same way I'm looking at my truck with no wheels and the tow people, right? in this particular scenario, my problem is that I can't live in Minneapolis anymore. So what I'm going to look for is a solution to that, right? And the problem in this scenario is the trail systems, right? So I want a solution. I'm going to look for connectedness, I think. And then I want to have clearly defined expectations for what that looks like, right? Where to go, when to go there, how to get there. So great communication. I should be able to, before I load my moving truck in Minneapolis, I should be able to go someplace and find an outline that clearly defines what this community looks like, this connected trail community, which is the communication of expectations. And then there should be some kind of ask, right? Like some sort of promotional effort on the part of the trail community that would ask me if I want to be a part of it. I think those four criteria for me really can comprise just about everything I'm going to do in life. And if I can't, if it's more than that, then we're in the weeds. If it's less than that, then we haven't met the basic stuff. So I think if I'm going to move away from Minneapolis, I'm going to, I'm going to look to solve my trail problem by examining clearly outlined expectations of what's available. And it's probably, if it's promoted in such a way that's appealing, both visually and informatively, then I'd be down with that. That'd be fun. But, and maybe that answers the question. I don't, maybe it doesn't. 
I don't know. What do you think? My answer is always, I want to be able to pedal my bike to the trails without having to load it into a vehicle. Yeah. And I'm okay with not doing that. Honestly, like I do that a lot now, but I think that's the, that's the diversity of connectedness, right? Like, yeah, it'd be great if I could roll out of my house and onto single track, that would be stunning or roll out of my house onto a gravel road. If that was my thing, that would be wonderful. But if that's not the case, which I don't believe it is for most people, then having a way to be connected to the trails with a trailhead parking lot that's well-marked and clearly defined spaces and expectations. Like here's the parking, here's the trail. Clearly marked trails are really neat and not that prevalent. So that would be a really great step forward. One of the things that we're working on um, in my daily life, my daily work life, and this is in that book, Unreasonable Hospitality, it's interrogating the, it's called, the Will Guadera outlines it as interrogating the process, right? So if I've got a trail system and it has users, which it should, or why else would it exist? Part of interrogating that process is you're going to go from, let's say it's in the woods, right? You're going to make single track. Right now, it's just woods. There's not a trail to be had. So we're going to start there and we're going to end at a thousand users a day. And we're going to throw in there two events annually that draw 250 riders a piece. And then we're going to throw in there weather, winter, summer, fall, spring. We're going to, it's going to have a seasonality and we're going to go start to finish on every user touch point. And then we're going to dial in even further and see how we can take every touch point and improve that situation. And when we get to the finish line on that, right, we've got this process fully interrogated. We're going to go deeper. And that's where you go from being, to use a Jim Collins-ism, that's when you go from being good to being great. If you get so far into the weeds on developing a trail system when you're looking at process and, and start to finish, that you're like, well... I think if on the back end of this particular section of single track, that's the farthest away from the trailhead. If we plant this specific tree that blossoms at a particular time in the spring and then doesn't leave, you know, doesn't lose its leaves until like historically and, and categorically, it's the last type of tree to lose its leaves every year. The trail system, like, Someone that's as far away from their car as possible on a hot day in August or maybe late September or early October is guaranteed to have shade at this spot that we've identified to be the most difficult spot on the course, the furthest away from the truck, right? If you go that far into developing a trail system, literally everything else that you've done up to that point is going to be a win. So if I'm going to look for a trail system, I'm going to start looking for stuff like that. This is the difference between finding a great restaurant and going back to a great restaurant. 
Like it, and it's the stuff, this, it, these are all the things that we don't ever spend any time on and nobody really talks about, but here we are. Yeah. No one's ever explained it that way. And I think it's, this is really good. Yeah. It's real. Like think about the hardest thing you've ever done and then think about what was going on in the middle and what would have made it better. And then just do that for everything you do. And my best guess is that if you start writing those things down and, and actively working to modify them, whatever you do next will be that much better. We do it when we ride all the time. Oh, I don't like this. Or I, we were talking about handlebar width when I got here. Like that's a thing that happens over time. And we just make the adjustments to our handlebars because it affects the way we turn, which improves our ride quality, which makes us faster, which gets us further down the road, right? That's an interrogation of a process. And we do this in our daily lives. We do this on our, with our rides. We, and we rarely do it at work or with the thing that we do that we spend a third of our lives doing. But a trek, that's what we do. We work really hard. We try to make the world a better place. And we're really bad at telling people about it. I will say that. And that's okay. Because I think it's this really Midwestern thing. Like we just do the thing and keep doing it. And we keep trying to get better at it. One of the things that doesn't, we're going to go here. One of the things that doesn't, I've talked about it on the podcast. I've had Bob Burns on the podcast. Yeah then I probably won't get fired for any of this. Great. Thanks for telling me that. (laughs) I feel a lot better now. (laughs) But the reason why I had him on was because of his position there now in advocacy. Yeah. And the Trek Foundation. Yeah. Not many people know that exists unless, unless you may have been to Cable, Wisconsin. Right. Or some other place where a Trek trail exists. Yeah. Which it kind of like in one hand, it's like, pretty cool because you're kind of it's kind of humbling to like not have to put it in someone's face but at the other hand it's like in order to have a useful place to put a mountain bike you need a good trail correct and trek is doing that yeah we're doing that plus a whole bunch of other things for sure and and the reason we do it is because we believe if we can get more people on bikes the world is going to be a better place And that when we interrogate the process, if we're going to look at that trail system, right, and we're going to go from green forest to finished single track with a trailhead, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens in between. And we're going to spend a ton of time on each one of those points. And it is a very slow-moving bus, but it moves and it gets stuff done. And that's what I, th- I believe that's what we're doing. That's what I'm doing. That's what my peers are doing. That's what everyone I talk to when I go to Waterloo is doing. Like we're just doing the work and it's the work, not what we talk about with the work. It's the actual work that moves the needle. So when we spend 99% of our time doing the work and 1% trying to tell you about it, we're getting way more done than if we spent 80% of the time doing the work and 20% of the time telling you about it. And what I'm seeing from my vantage point in the bike world today and over the course of the last bunch of years, most people 
are probably doing 50 50. 50% of the time they're working, and 50% of the time they're telling you about how great they are. I don't need to be told. I can figure it out. I'm pretty smart. I think we're all pretty smart. And I don't think we're giving ourselves enough credit for that. So don't just show me. We can go back to the car. Like, I don't need three people to talk about four solutions and like have a conversation about which one might work. I just need one. Just do the work. I paid you to come here and pick up the car and move it. I don't, don't ask me because I'm not, I don't know. That's why I called you. And that's what we're doing in the bike world. We're not talking about it. We're just doing it. And, that, and on that note, the people that took your wheels, mm-hmm. they didn't tell you anything. No, they just did the work. very good. Yeah. At super doing good. it. And they're, and yeah, they were super efficient and that's okay. I mean, I hope they don't come back because it really is like, it's a pain to have to move a car without wheels, but. It's also, it's okay. I have a pretty, I'm pretty fortunate. I, I live a pretty lucky life. I have a car that could have wheels taken from it. A lot of people don't have that luxury, right? Like how many people woke up today with transportation problems that can't be solved by getting in their car and driving someplace? How many people woke up today that, that are wondering where their next meal is coming from? How many people woke up today that can't walk and, and not think about all the steps they take like I do? Like someone literally has it worse all the time. I think that's a good way to close this one. I'm into it. <laughs> I appreciate you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on here. I hope there's something you can use. Oh, it's all going to get used. This is good <laughs> stuff. It's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a departure from the normal stuff, but it's actually a departure that I've wanted to take for quite a while. Yeah. It's just people, right? I mean, that's your person, I'm a person. We're just doing people stuff. I think that's for me, that's that's why I I was excited to get down here. Yeah. Well, I was ex- I mean, I was excited to have you down here to do this. And when yeah. I saw the wheels weren't on your car, I'm like, wow. Yeah, First yeah. I was like, wow, like they're like actually it's on blocks. It's impressive. I will tell you, it is impressive to, to see, to see the work that was done on my vehicle overnight, like to come out and have that be the greeting. Like that is impressive. Whatever they were doing, they were in the dark and they managed to get it on blocks and it didn't, I don't think anything on, on the underside of the vehicle is damaged. So I'm, I mean, I'm impressed with the cleanliness of their effort and like, it's just like, they're good. They're good at what they do. I don't really necessarily appreciate what they do, but at all, (laughs) yeah, not really, but they are good at it. And they, you know, short of delivering clear expectations and an ask, like they got the first two, right. They had a problem. They talked to themselves about it. They came up with a solution. And then they just executed, right? Which I suppose to some degree does wander into that third level, but they definitely didn't ask and they didn't leave any money. So it's not totally fair, but I get it. They're just wheels. Well, Chris, I really appreciate this. Yeah, I really for sure. appreciate you. Thank you. Likewise. I appreciate the stuff you throw out on LinkedIn and Instagram and all those little reminders of like kind of kicking yourself in the ass and looking in the mirror and doing 
there's a lot of good to be had there. You know, so thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect Podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. If you listen to the Trail Effect Podcast on Apple or Spotify, please don't forget to leave a rating and review, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect Podcast. Also, don't forget to check out Cooley Creative at www.dojustsendit.com. For additional ways to help support the Trail Effect Podcast, check out the Affiliate Links tab at the Trail Effect website, where you'll find links to Kettle Mountain Apparel, Worldwide Cyclery, and Trail One Components. By using the affiliate links found at www.trailfectpodcast.com, a small commission will come back to the podcast, which will help keep this thing going. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>